Good morning. Welcome to Thursday. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the forecast, but a high of 55 today. That's on the heels of a beautiful day yesterday with some actual vitamin D being showered upon us. Yes. It was pretty great. I saw our friend from Detroit News, Tony Paul, golfed yesterday. Did he really? He did. I, 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 I got to tell you. The golfers were going to be out. I left my clubs down in Florida, uh, so I'm going to uh, miss this opportunity. But, yeah, it's going to be back down to the 40s. Uh, interesting story on MLive, we may talk about it later, and that is is when you look at this long-term warming trend we're in in February, the average temperature this time of year is 23.5 degrees. We're in the 40s and 50s. How often has this warming thing happened? Only twice in the last 125 years. That's how rare this warm up. But did the bo- did the bottom fall out later on in those well, that's, years? You it, know, that was, that's what it, I want to know. Does the bottom fall out later? And isn't that a pure Michigan way of looking at it? <laughs> yeah. well, we're going to pay for this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's going to be a reckoning. Yeah. I think it's going to return to being cold, but it's just a little unnerving to have 56 in February. Yeah. I, I know. And it's like, okay, the bill is going to come due one way or another, one way or another, either with lower water levels for our boats or we've got to ski. We've got to, you know, folks up north will tell you if, if it, there's no snow on the ground in southern Michigan, folks don't think about driving up to ski up north. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a psychological thing. Uh, the governor laying out her budget yesterday. A lot of folks were saying, well, exactly how is she going to pay for all this stuff? When we were up at the state of the state, there was a lot of Republican concern that this was a tax hike manifesto well it turns out she's going to be doing something unique though it also might be controversial and that is she is going to redirect 670 million dollars that would normally go into the state teachers retirement system for health care and she's going to move it to k through 12 to pay for community college and to offer free preschool for all four-year-olds republicans are saying she's rating the pension fund which isn't technically accurate. She just won't be paying into it as much as she has in the past. Why? Because it's 99.2% funded. Mm. So you know, she's saying, look, we've done our job balancing the books, getting them in good shape. We think that this is a way, other than raising taxes, that we can have our preschool without having to raise taxes. And the teachers are into it? MEA has said um, that they are not going to oppose it. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the, the thing right now, but yes, one of the uh, it was uh, Chandra Mataferi, who is uh, the president of the MEA, uh, kind of endorses it. She says Governor Whitmer's proposed budget pays down MISPR's liabilities early, securing the retirements of countless educators and freeing up more funds to invest in students. So. They look at this as an investment in them in K through 12. I would ask the governor, and unfortunately we asked her. She's not here today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we already have seen pathetic return on our investment when it comes to the learning loss dollars that we threw at districts. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do with this $600 million that's going to be different? Now, I understand the community college. She, she's got this notion that it's no longer K through 12. It's pre-K through 14, through 14 right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that's – and folks at the chamber, folks in the business community, they're endorsing that. I think the way she's paying for it is unique. My concern is I also remember when she said we had too much money in catastrophic claims, gave us a rebate, and a year later they said, we don't have enough money. Uh-huh. So there is a there is that. You know, are we going to be asked to pay for it on the other side because maybe we overestimated uh, how flush we were? Is this a one-time hit, though, that they're going to use that money? It it can't be. 
Right. You're making a con- – You're great question, Lloyd. You're making a contract that you're going to be providing uh, four-year-olds with an unlimited and, – and that's the other part here. It means that you're going to get, if you've got a four-year-old preschool, no matter what your income is, well, folks, if you can afford it, let them afford it. <laughs> yeah. You know, why are you, why are you bankrolling this for folks? And, and a lot of folks say, well, I can't afford it. So an interesting discussion. Eric Nesbitt, the senator uh, who is the minority leader in the Senate right now, has some thoughts on that. We're going to be talking with him at 835. Meantime, some Biden dignitaries coming to town. Yeah, uh, in a bid to address the ongoing crisis in Gaza, top aides of President Biden are set to convene with local Palestinian Americans during their visit to Michigan today, Dr. Yaman Sadeh. He's a respected neurosurgeon at the University of Michigan. He has secured an invitation to engage with administration officials. He says he intends to passionately advocate for the evacuation of his family members who are currently trapped in the war-torn region, Dr. Sadeh. Uh, emphasizing there must be a pathway for Palestinian-American families to exit Gaza. He says his father, stepmother, and three sisters have endured dire conditions for months, grappling with starvation, homelessness, and fear. Overall, we're grateful that uh, President Biden is is sending senior aides. You know, I think that's kind of the bare minimum, but it's still not enough. I mean, what's going on is one of, you know, the worst humanitarian disasters in history. It's the kind of thing you read about in history books. That sound courtesy of Local 4. Details regarding the following, uh, the forthcoming meeting, though, uh, remain pending. Additionally, the White House delegates are slated to engage with the local Arab American and Muslim leaders as well who harbored frustrations over the administration's approach to the Israel-Hamas conflict. I, his, um, and kudos to, uh, I, I can't remember who the reporter was that did it last night, but kudos to finding this this gentleman. You know, he's talking about a, a permanent ceasefire. Israeli folks say, well, that's a permanent surrender, that we will never, ever be out from under the Hamas threat. But he's saying you got to find something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He said his, his family members, and we're talking dad, stepmom, and I think some Three siblings. Sisters. Three sisters. He says, um, they're teachers, they're doctors, um, they are, they are and, and they're also homeless and starving. Yes. It's so upsetting to see the the families, the people that had nothing to do with Hamas, Mm -hmm. suffer the way they suffer. And the people who are here who still have their families over there and, you know, don't really know what to do other than what Dr. Sadeh is going to try to do and talk to someone to try to get his uh, family out of there. And make no mistake, I mean, the Biden administration is between a rock and a hard place. He said something interesting. He said, you know, friends tell friends when they're doing something bad. You know, friends can tell friends you've gone too far yeah. in, in terms of what we should say to Israel. Biden's in a heck of a political pickle here um, because he's got the Arab American community. Uh, there is a Gallup poll out today showing the Democrat advantage among blacks and Hispanics it has never been smaller. They have hit new loads, uh, new lows, rather. Democrats retain smaller advantage among young adults. But Hispanics and African-Americans are abandoning him uh, in significant numbers. This is an attempt to try to shore things up. Yep. And Anthony Blinken just making all these trips over there, trying to move the needle in some way. And, and I, he's still kind of hopeful that, in spite of the fact that Netanyahu has slam dunked the, the last offer. Yeah, but they're trying still. They yeah. said that there's some hope coming from Hamas. And the, the other thing that was just hurt your heart was there was a new Israeli report out that says of the 100 or 50 so hostages that they think remain out there, that one-fifth are dead. Right, yeah. in the 30-ish range. And that's just heartbreaking. We don't know who they are.
No. no. And so you're a family waiting for news. That's got to be tough. Uh, and interesting, we talked a lot about the, the crumbly fallout yesterday in, uh, with the four uh, convictions. Um, uh, Tate Muir's dad, Buck Muir, spoke to our, our buddies on All Talk. And he was so interesting, and he said, look, you know, I hope it leads to greater responsibility, but it's not going to bring my, my son back. Mm-hmm. And he said something about the politics of the moment that I thought was, was really strong. And it was basically this. He said, you know, anytime we try to do something, the, the hard right says we, you, we, we're not going to accept any gun laws. The hard left says we want to take the guns away from everybody. And goes, those of us in the middle that just want a friggin' solution to protect our kids are left without any discussion because the extremes are silencing it. He says, we're killing our kids because of our polarization. Mm. And it was one of the most thoughtful things from a man who has paid the highest price right. possible. Yeah. And I get heated when we talk about school shootings because it only happens here. So what can we do to stop it? And you can't ever talk about it no, right. because of what Buckmere said. Right. And it, it comes down to the fact that the political class only wants to hear from their base and also is frightened of extremes in their base so much that they're going to ignore the large majority of constituents, maybe not members of their own party, maybe independents, but the constituents in the middle saying, for God, goodness sakes, do something. Uh, we'll, you know, Tuesday, we're going to have uh, more on the safe storage law that's going to be taking place and also the red flag laws. Lots of people with concerns about whether due process rules will be followed there, and we're going to explore all of it um, in, uh, in, in future editions of this show. When we come back, as I said, uh, the, a lot of school districts have done a pathetic job recovering from learning loss in spite of being showered with millions of dollars from the federal government. One that has outperformed the rest the city of Detroit will speak to their superintendent next on JR Morning. Despite the challenges of the pandemic, the Detroit Public Schools Community District has been making waves with its post-pandemic recovery efforts. And get this, they're outperforming national trends in reading and math. That's according to the Educational Recovery Scorecard, a collaborative study from Stanford University and Harvard University. Joining us to talk about this great news and what it means for the students and educators is Dr. Nikolai Vitti. He's superintendent of the Detroit Public Schools Community District. Dr. Vitti, welcome back to JR Morning. Well, thank you. Great to be here and uh, obviously great to talk about this. Now, you know, with so many other districts in Michigan and across the country still lagging behind in pre-pandemic learning, what do you attribute uh, this district's greatness to? Uh, none of this is by chance. Um, this is uh, intentionality, uh, focus, and strategy. You know, before the pandemic, we're seeing improvement in student achievement. Uh, we're implementing what research says we should have been. You know, very aggressive on the reform, very um, strategic with the curriculum we're using, the professional development, staff changes. I mean, we've made almost 80% changes of our principals. We've uh, been nearly fully staffed with teachers. Um, and uh, we pivoted from the pandemic, I think, faster than most large urban school districts and even suburban districts. So we were already doing the right thing, and I think we pivoted with intentionality after the pandemic, and I was very clear that uh, the pandemic impact was real. Uh, It exacerbated some of the uh, consequences of concentrated poverty, but I said we can't make excuses. We have to show improvement. Our kids need that more than ever. Uh, and uh, our principals, our teachers, our support staff responded, and the data speaks to the reform, but the intentionality and the willingness to overcome the, ne- the, ne- the real issues of the pandemic, unlike 
other districts throughout the country. So I'm, I'm extremely proud. You know, I, I often use the analogy of the Lions uh, with, uh, with our team. And I said, uh, we are an improved team. Uh, we made the playoffs. Now it's time to, you know, go on to the Super Bowl and win. And our, my goal and our goal is to be the best largest urban school district in the country. And this data, you know, independent national study shows that we are the one of the highest improved large urban school districts in the country. And now, com, you know, getting in a better situation with uh, suburban districts. And, and that's what our kids deserve. You know, I've, I've said on and on and on. We don't have a talent problem in Detroit. We have an opportunity um, problem. And, and the school system uh, was once a fault uh, and part of the problem. Uh, now it's becoming part of the solution. The statewide average is only a 7% improvement in math and only 1% in reading between 22 and 23. And I, I think what Harvard and Stanford are raising the red flag about is a lot of the COVID dollars that were coming and flowing to districts to overcome learning loss. Will they end next fall? What are you doing to leverage those assets and resources now to kind of take it to the next level, new gear? Yeah, well, with, with the federal dollars, uh, the conversation that I had uh, with the board was uh, we had to be disciplined. Um, let's use this as one-time money. Let's not add to reoccurring spending, and let's use the money to address very specific COVID-related issues like the need to have more masks, you know, social distance, hiring more teachers, lower class size, to build a eventual bench for retirements, you know, uh, buying more technology for online learning, moving curriculum to online learning, doing more um, small group one-on-one reading intervention. Um, COVID testing allowed us to come back and have assurance that people were safe. And then half of that federal money is being put into buildings, um, $700 million, um, which only puts about a half of a den and a $1.5 billion problem. But bottom line is we used the money to come back safely um, at the height of the pandemic, and then we used it to address learning loss, and then we used it for one-time um, expenses. This year's budget the 23-24 budget is already built off of not relying on COVID money. Um, and we were recognized you know, by the U.S. Department of Education as being one of the smartest districts in how we use COVID money. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of stories, on, unfortunately, locally in Michigan and nationally, where districts use one-time money for reoccurring expenses. Mm-hmm. They're going to hit a cliff. And they they didn't really act didn't even deal with the gap that existed that exists throughout Michigan and nation with the drop in enrollment. Um, so basically, they use COVID money to fill the gap in revenue because of loss of enrollment at expenses like increasing teacher salaries and other things. And now they're going to hit a cliff. So you're going to see a lot of districts in trouble, probably closing schools, laying off teachers, or asking the federal government and the state uh, to bail them out. We're not in that position as a district. Wow. You mentioned pivoting quicker than other districts. Do you attribute that to using that money correctly and getting back on track? Or what? why did you pivot quicker? Yeah, a combination of things. I, I definitely think it was using the money um, to meet what, what, our, what our staff and our families wanted to see as far as investments COVID-related. So, for example, you know, we can have debates about masking, not masking, cl- close contact, quarantining. And I probably would say I wasn't completely in favor of all of that, but that's what our families wanted to see in order to have the assurance to come back and so staff. So we used COVID money to social distance. That meant hiring more teachers, but we hired more teachers knowing that we were going to have teachers retire. So we built a bench. We didn't add to the reoccurring revenue. Uh, And then we COVID tested for almost a year and a half. And that was very expensive 
but COVID dollars allowed us to do that. So we use COVID money in a one-time way to deal with one-time pandemic-related issues, which brought um, kids back to school, which was desperately needed. Um, and then from there, uh, it was pivoting to say, pandemic is real. Obviously, it disproportionately impacted Detroiters. Um, but we have to get back to reform. We've got to get kids back in school, and we have to um, accelerate our intentionality around teaching and learning because of the learning loss that we saw. But, you know, we did things in the pandemic that other districts didn't. For example, we taught the whole day, and, and, and we made it a requirement that teachers had to teach the regular schedule but online. A lot of districts just went to assigning students um, assignments, mm-hmm. and then they would turn it in without the screen time to teach the material. We knew that our kids wouldn't have the right skill, background, or even parent support to do that. So teachers taught the regular school day online in front of a camera. There was a lot of resistance to that, but that allowed teacher students to get what they needed yeah. imperfect um, during the pandemic. And, and, and I'm just going to repeat, we created a new baseline after the pandemic with our performance. And I said, I don't care where we were before the pandemic. This is the new reality from the impact of the pandemic. We have to improve the next year. And this is the year we're talking about related to the data. I think a lot of districts stayed in a place of talking about the woes of the pandemic Mm -hmm. rather than moving forward and Mm -hmm. focusing on what kids need. Dr. Nikolai Vitti, we are so happy to have you down here. And we are so happy what you guys are doing over at DPSCD and working closely with the school board as well. You guys are doing a wonderful job. Keep up the great work. We all know how important the tourism and hospitality industries are in our state. Now there's a brand new collective uniting the stakeholders in both industries. It's called the Michigan Hospitality and Tourism Alliance, and it just launched yesterday. There are 11 founding members, and some of them are Mackinac Island Tourism Bureau, Michigan Boating Industries Association, Michigan Festivals and Events Association, just to name a few. One of those founding members is Visit Detroit. And let's bring in Christopher Moyer, Senior Director of Communications at Visit Detroit. Good morning, Chris. Hey, good morning, Jamie. How are you today? We are good. Uh, This sounds exciting. My first question is, why is this necessary? Everyone in this uh, collaborative here does really great work individually. Absolutely. Our job is to help drive Michigan's economy forward. Everybody in this group is is really committed to sharing the governor's vision, legislators' vision to increase Michigan's population, increase Michigan's economic vitality. And tourism is really the the first handshake, the first hello, the first welcome to the state, whether it's in Detroit or Mackinac Island or or Marquette. Uh, We've got a great, great story to tell. And we also now need to put some dollars behind that story to make sure we're staying competitive with the rest of the country. And Christopher, you know, does this also help in uh, making sure Michigan is promoted nationally instead of just regionally? Unquestionably, Lloyd. This is uh, a national and even an international opportunity. We want to be talking to our friends in Canada. Millions of Canadian visitors should be coming to Michigan every year, whether it's for the great sporting events that happen in Detroit or to see our great, uh, you know, to see Lake Michigan, to see Mackinac Island. Uh, We want to be attracting people from California and New York and Florida and Texas because an outside dollar, uh, it means that we're not just circulating our own money amongst our neighbors. 
we're getting outside money into the state, um, creating strong, a stronger economy. So tell me about what, what I mean, as you, as you gather this alliance, what are the missed opportunities that you fear that we're making here or where are we falling short of where we need to be? Well, Guy, the, where we're falling short right now is that 18 years ago, the Pure Michigan campaign was launched. And this is one of the most iconic travel campaigns in the history of, of travel, not just in the United States, but around the world. Other states, other countries look to Pure Michigan as a model of what to do. But now they've, they've taken that, they've looked at it, and they're, they're beating us. They're exceeding the work that we're, that we're doing. And so what we're asking the state of Michigan to do is put $50 million behind Travel Michigan, not take dollars from, from some other program, the You Can in Michigan program or Pure Opportunity or Pure Business Connect. We need the MEDC to be, you know, be really well-funded across all of its marketing channels. Mm-hmm. But we need to focus on how we attract the visitor in the first place because it starts with a visit. They'll come here, they'll fall in love with Detroit or Grand Rapids or Traverse City or hundreds of other communities around the state, and then they'll want to move here. Um, you are, you've garnered some friends within the legislature, and you have a caucus. It's called a Hospitality and Tourism Caucus, and then you have a policy agenda for this year. Absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of legislators that support this. The governor supports the vision of promoting Michigan regionally, nationally, internationally as well. But it's about finding how we work together between the legislature, between the governor, uh, economic development engines, to make sure that, that that policy agenda, which is, again, supporting, the travel, uh, supporting Travel Michigan and that Pure Michigan campaign to the tune of $50 million, other things like creating a large special events fund uh, that helps attract events like the NFL draft that we're hosting in 77 days. These are the types of things that will propel Michigan forward, will propel Detroit and Southeast Michigan forward for years and decades to come. And um, Christopher, I was thinking too, you know, we kind of capitalize on the great things that are happening here in Michigan. You know, we have, uh, new hotels that are coming up uh, here in the city of Detroit. You have U of M winning the national championship. The Lions doing very well. You new breweries. New breweries. <laughs> I mean, you know, we got to capitalize on all this all this great uh, stuff going on the, in the state of Michigan. The Michigan Brewers Guild, also a founding member. Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, I mean, Michigan is the home of some of the best uh, breweries in in the whole country. Unquestionably, that when people when I go around the the country, people say, "Oh, you know, I really like this beer from from Bell's or this beer from Atwater or you know M43." So we've got a great story with with beer, but you're you're a hundred percent right that we need to capitalize and tell our story more effectively. I, I just focusing on Detroit. I mean, cars wouldn't be cars, music wouldn't be music, and culture wouldn't be culture without Detroit. Detroiters and Southeast Michiganders. And so to me, we have an obligation to get more people here to experience all of the incredible world-changing uh, things that Detroiters have done. And, and so 
that's where marketing comes in. That's where promotion comes in. And that's what's going to drive economic vitality. Marketing's important. Promoting's important. Lord knows. And I think all of us are saying amen to what you're saying there. But there's also a thing about making sure that we don't shoot ourselves in the foot. Uh, while we're speaking today, Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist is going to be meeting with the one fair wage people who want to do away with the tipped economy in the state of Michigan. Is that something that this alliance will be wading into and advocating on behalf of those servers who say it will make Michigan less hospitable for them? Well, Guy, I think you're you're absolutely right. Making sure that, that workers have the opportunity uh, to, to go in and make a great wage is really critical to the hospitality industry. There are certain levels of uh, regulation that can often make that harder. But there's, there's no doubt that the Michigan Hospitality Alliance is going to be working with the administration, going to be working with legislators to try to make sure that the workers, the backbone of this industry, the tens of thousands of workers around the state of Michigan, have an access to, to great wages, uh, great benefits, and great opportunities from, from an economic perspective. I know the waitresses that I know, at least, love the tips. They want the tips to keep coming. Bar, bartenders, too. Yes, yeah. exactly. All right, no well, doubt. Chris, I think this is a great idea. We'll check back with you to see how it's going in the future and check in on that policy agenda. Christopher Moyer, oh, Senior Director of Communications at Visit Detroit. Thank you. Thank you all. When we come back, uh, Barbara Quaid weighing in on the Supreme Court taking up the Colorado case that wants to ban Trump from the ballot. It is the most consequential Supreme Court case regarding elections since the 2000 election debacle, which saw the Supreme Court basically calling the election for one side or the other. It is also, honestly, probably the last case they would like to see landing on their doorstep as they battle the perception that they've become more politicized. So what are the arguments that we will see as the Colorado case banning Trump's appearance on the Colorado ballot comes to the highest court in the land? We turn to former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and professor at the University of Michigan Law School, Barbara Quaid, joining us on the live line this morning. Good morning, Barb. Good morning, Guy. Thanks for having me. So it, it, there's so many different um, arguments that are going to be made here. One of them is that President Trump will say that he is not, under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, an officer in the government. And yet there are kind of dueling definitions about that, aren't there? There are. And, you know, Guy, if I were a betting person, my, my bet would be that the Supreme Court will decide this case on one of these more legal issues as opposed to engaging in the bigger question of engaging insurrection. And this is one of them. Um you know, when courts look at, at uh, interpreting statutes, they have to look at the language of the statute. And so what this says is that this provision applies to senators, representatives, and other officers of the United States. And so the argument is, well, if they intended to include the president, they would have named the president as they did senators and representatives. Of course, the counter to that is, of course, it means officers of the United States. They had to name senators and representatives because those are part of the legislative branch and all the officers are in the executive branch. And if they meant to protect the government from those who had um, been treasonous toward it, then, uh, of course, they would have included the president of the United States. They also looked at the language of the oath. Um, the 14th Amendment says those who have taken an oath to support the Constitution, the oath the president takes is to preserve, protect 
and defend yeah. the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that suggests that they meant something other than the president. But in earlier versions of Section 3, though, the president and vice president were included, and then it was scrapped from the final text. Doesn't that tell us something? Yeah, although, you know, one of the reasons that textualists are textualists is they will say that, um, you know, looking at the language of uh, statutes and constitutions is a little like watching sausage being made. It's kind of a messy process. There are others who said, uh, you know, it should apply. And so you never know exactly what was in the intent of the framers because there are lots of people involved and there's lots of different people with different interpretations. And so that's why they look to the plain text to decide what was meant at the time. But but you're right, and I don't think it's an easy issue. I think one of the things that you often hear from people who want one outcome or the other is that they will suggest that, of course, you know, the answer here is obvious. And I don't think it's obvious. I think there are a lot of hard questions to be decided here today. And omit a lot of information in the process. So do you believe Trump's lawyers will cling to that officer of the United States? Because the other argument is he didn't engage in an insurrection. You know, Jamie, I think that they will raise a number of different arguments as they have in their brief. And what they get a chance to talk about today will be very much a function of the questions that they're asked by the justices. Um, They may want to avoid that substantive issue of engaging in insurrection, although even that is pretty vague. And there are some additional questions. And if Donald Trump can win on any one of them, then he wins. And so there are some other ones. One he's argued is that it's premature to ban him from the ballot now because the language of the 14th Amendment prevents uh, someone only from holding office, not from running for or seeking office. Some say that would lead to an absurd result, right? Which is right as a practical elected. matter. Then, yeah, you get to January and they say, "Sorry, you know, no can do. Uh, let's let's start over and, and pick someone else." Um, or that it is only Congress who can make this decision. It is not a, a decision for the courts. And so, I imagine that uh, Trump's lawyers will focus on all of those things because if he wins any one of those, then he wins. And so, giving the court some off ramp to avoid that engage in insurrection. Um, I think might be an attractive um, alternative for him and for the court. Barb, there's a a, a strict decorum to follow uh, when you're in the Supreme Court, and you know, uh, former President Trump has basically been in all of his all of the courtrooms where he's facing uh, uh, cases uh, across the country. Is it a good idea for him to to be there in the Supreme Court? I know there's no cameras there; they do audio. Uh, is is it a good idea for him to be there and maybe try to turn that into uh, his his own type of uh, uh, campaign circus? stop? Yeah, campaign circus. If if I were advising him as his lawyer, I would say there is nothing to be gained and much to be lost by your presence inside this courtroom. So maybe you should uh, spend your time in in other ways because, as you say, it's very strict. They have a sergeant at arms. They follow a, a very specific protocol. There are time limits on all the arguments. And being disruptive, I think, can only harm him. Now, maybe he has a press conference on the steps outside. You know, people often have uh, press remarks or protests on on the steps of the courthouse. You know, go for it there. But inside that courtroom, it will be very formal. Chief Justice Roberts runs a tight ship. uh, And there will be, you know, they they utilize this scarce amount of time really to ask questions of the lawyers to help them craft an opinion, or sometimes even to serve as an advocate for the justice sitting two or three seats down from them by tossing out questions that they hope the lawyer will answer to satisfy their colleague.
Sometimes headlines have a way of colliding, Barb, and, and today a headline out of off of NBC News, Russia has banned an anti-war candidate from facing off against Putin. That a, a, In Russia, some elites have said who and who cannot run against the, the leader. Is that something that they could consider, not Russia, obviously, but is that something that the Supreme Court should be considering, whether we want an unelected judge in Colorado or a panel of judges, whether we want a secretary of state in Maine to have that kind of power to ban a candidate from the ballot and perhaps determine the outcome of a presidential election? You know, as a practical matter, I suppose Chief Justice Roberts is thinking about the institution and making sure he is protecting its reputation in the court of public opinion. But I think that really is not the job of judges. They have to make some very unpopular decisions yeah. from time to time. So and it's so a political question, really, not a legal question? I, I think it is a legal question, and I think they should avoid the politics. So I think that okay. from time to time, um, there is um, pressure on them to make that which is politically popular. Um, and I think their job is to read the text. But you raise an important question about what is a political question. And there are certain questions, for example, political gerrymandering, that the Supreme Court has held by by the language of the Constitution, belongs to the political branches. And I think there is an argument that the mechanism for enforcing this is is Congress and not the courts, because there is language that Congress may remove the disability with a two-thirds vote. Mm-hmm. So does that not suggest that, that it is Congress who does the fact-finding, and upon a finding of engagement in an insurrection, then this disability is automatic, but that it is Congress who makes that finding. Well, I so think I think that's another possible off-ramp. There's also an argument that legislatures at the state level should be handling this, not a secretary of state or the judicial branch, too. Uh, Barb, just about a minute left. Um, my question is, I, I heard that Chief Justice Roberts is probably going to want to get not, uh, maybe not unanimous, but not along party lines kind of deal, so it looks better to the public, whatever the decision is. Do you agree with that? I do. And, you you know, he may not be able to get there. But I think, you know, sometimes in big decisions um, you see and you never know what's going on behind the scenes. But, um, you know, Brown versus Board of Education famously got to a unanimous opinion. And sometimes the way to achieve that is, well, if we take out this explosive language here and we tone down it here, would you be willing to sign on if we agreed to do it in that way? So, um, I think he will work hard to try to get as much consensus as possible. It may be impossible to get a unanimous decision, but I think that it, it is worth the effort on his part uh, to try to get consensus because it's such an important decision. And for it to split along party lines, I think, would further undermine public confidence in the court yeah. as an independent institution as opposed to simply a political institution that reflects the viewpoints of the presidents who put them on the court. Barbara McQuaid, we appreciate your clarity. Thanks for being with us. We are teeing up, and I use that phrase uh, with intent, we are teeing up a beautiful day ahead. Uh, sunny skies for the most part with temps nearing 55, and this is not going to be the warmest day of the of the week. I we, know. We're, we're saving the best for Friday. So a crazy day ahead. But and, what does it mean in a couple of weeks? Does it yeah. mean that we're going to pay for this? Are we going to go back to so Lloyd Jackson is winter's over. Yet. He's waiting for the other frozen boot to drop. Oh, yes. God. But the but the yeah. rodent said early spring, right? That's right. <laughs>
That's right. Bob and Bethany. and yeah, he can just sit sit there and chew on his uh, whatever twig he's got. <laughs> the rest of us have to deal with the fallout. That's it. Uh, meantime, we know that drug prices continue to cripple so many households, and there's going to be yet another attempt to do something about it. Yeah, political and legal figures from Southeast Michigan united yesterday to announce the initiation of federal lawsuits against pharmaceutical giants and pharmacies involved in the production and distribution of uh, of insulin. The objective, to reclaim the exorbitant expenses incurred in procuring insulin for the individuals they insure, including employees and retirees. Now, these lawsuits, Mike, they mark a pioneering move by Michigan municipalities shedding light on what they perceive as a fraudulent pricing scheme, possibly constituting anti-competitive collusion under the federal RICO statute. Now, the dire consequences of these inflated prices are underscored by Wayne County Health Director Abdul Ed Syed. 39% of folks who need insulin are rationing it. And I just want you to understand what that means. That means that if you're not getting enough insulin, your blood pre- your blood sugar is routinely too high and that you are running the risk of long-term consequences, loss of hearing, loss of sensation in your legs, cardiovascular disease, stroke. And a uh, guy, Angela Moye, she's an insulin, uh, insulin user. She was at the press conference yesterday and she shared her, her concerns about these high prices, noting that the financial strain, even with insurance coverage, with expenses reaching as high as $800, despite efforts to mitigate those costs through coupons she would get from time to time. See, what I don't understand, though, is Alyssa Slotkin and others are running on the notion that they've already fixed this, that they went to battle. And and in March of last year, Eli Lilly, Nova Nordisk, and Sanofi, the three major insulation manufa- insulin manufacturers, uh-huh. Cut their list prices by 65% to 80%. So why isn't that trickling down to consumers? That's Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean and why do we have to go I, through lawsuits now? Yeah, because they're yeah. All, some of them are already saying, you know, claiming claiming victory. So why is that you know, is it the pharmacy benefit manager nonsense or you know, mm-hmm. what is it? It needs to get fixed. Um, we do have to make sure though that we don't throw out the baby with the bath water and end up with insulin shortages mm-hmm. because the prices are too low. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why is the trickle-down not happening? Yeah, we had a great discussion. We invite everybody to visit uh, thegreatvoice.com or wjr.com. Some great legal minds talking about what the long-term effects of the crumbly verdict will be. But then there's those that were directly impacted by this, and their take is interesting. Yeah, Guy, I mean, I can't imagine these parents who went through the Ethan Crumbly trial and now this trial and the father's trials coming up. It's just reopening these civil litigation yet to come. Exactly. Buck Muir was this. He's the father of 16 year old Tate who was gunned down in the school in November 2021. He was on all talk yesterday and he was um, he was just so insightful. And first of all, they did not go to the courtroom to listen to this verdict. We talked about how we would feel either way. And, you know, we, we feel like, you know, the prosecution did an amazing job, you know, um, and the people spoke. And, you know, for me, that, that, that was the most incredible thing because, you know, if, if you've been following this case closely, um, you know, the people haven't been able to speak for the charges against the school, right? Um, or the claims against the school. So he was saying that he watched the verdict on his phone at his house. And then, of course, then the follow-up question to that is, do you think school officials should be charged criminally? 
I think what you guys need to do is talk about that a little bit more. You know, um, the school has not taken any accountability here. Yeah. When I think of November 30th, I think of four legs of failure. I think of the shooter, the parents, the school, and our community. Think about this for a second. Mm. I think of four legs of failure, okay? The shooter's being held accountable by the system. The parents, leg number two, is being held accountable by the system. Our community, you know, um, I feel like 42 Strong, the peer, peer mentoring program we started, is addressing the community issue. How could this kid walk through those hallways every day and not have a bud, huh. not have a mentor, right? So three out of the four legs are getting addressed. What's the only leg left? The school. But the system is not allowing us to hold the school accountable. And that's because of governmental immunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's very interesting that uh, he wants the school officials to be held accountable, and he's not going to let that go. Let me ask you something, though. If you had lost your child, the worst possible thing you can have happen to you, could you be that thoughtful and introspective? And also be concerned about the well-being of the shooter who didn't have a buddy, who didn't have a mentor. He's an amazing man. It would be very hard. That's what's incredible about that foundation they started, 42 Strong, the number that <sighs> Tate Muir won, or wore on the football field. Now this is this mentorship where, so these kids are not alone, who may feel no. alone. They're going to help some folks down the line. It didn't maybe help his child, but it will help. People he could have gotten lost on the road to bitterness. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow, I got to tell you, he's a better. I, I don't. I fear that I couldn't be as big a person as he's being. It'd I be know. difficult. It'd be difficult. I, it's just he was so touching. And you know, as I said earlier, he also talks about. <clears throat> he said, "Look, they said, do you think this will bring about real change? Will we see? A, you know, have we reduced the likelihood that this will happen again? And he's, he's just very skeptical about it. And he said, you know why? Because the extremists on both sides of the issues aren't allowing us to have an honest, meaningful discussion. They shut down the discussion on, on the left by saying, well, we just need to take every gun. And he said they, then they shut down the, this discussion on the right with saying, well, the Second Amendment is sacrosanct. We can't have anything that would in any way um, reduce its effectiveness. And he goes, that's not a solution. Right. We need to have meaningful discussion. I was so impressed with him. Um, Interesting report out. We all remember (coughs) the legislature, the governor, taking a big victory lap on auto insurance reforms. We still have a lot of people that are catastrophically injured, which are being left without the home care that they need. But now comes, you know, the, the, the report is always, yeah, but at least you've got lower premiums. Well, now we find out that after being number one in the nation for having the highest premiums, after all the auto show, all the auto uh, reforms, we are now number three. Oh. So we okay, we, it's a trend in the right direction. Boy, yeah. boy, that's a that's a positive development, isn't it? So we're still paying, and based on zip codes, and Detroit is still number one. But mm-hmm. even in the state, across the state, have we seen some premium rollbacks? Yes. Have we seen some rollbacks in the catastrophic claims part of it? Yes. But we're still paying way too much. So why hasn't it delivered more? That's a question that we're going to need to explore in greater depth at another time. But I was shocked that after everything we've done, um, and I've seen some real savings. I don't know about you guys, but we still, for too many of motorists out there, yeah. it is still, uh, we're still number three. Thank goodness the one thing it has done, though, we have fewer uninsured motorists out there putting all of us at risk. 
Time for WJR Business Beat, brought to you by Shelving.com. We rack your world. Let's check in with Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of Startup Nation, to find out what's happening in the tech sector here in the state of Michigan. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Guy, Lloyd, Jamie. What accelerated rapidly during the pandemic has kept humming right along these days, and that's Americans turning to online shopping as a primary way to make their purchases. Data from a new study just released by the online marketplace Timu, conducted by Propeller Insights, has the following data relating to interesting insights to America's online shopping behavior. First, 75.2% of consumers surveyed believe that they are actually now pretty savvy at doing their online shopping. Not just that they shop online, but they are really good at it, meaning that they're comfortable, confident, and adept at navigating online shops and the key functionality to execute their shopping online. But also, they now feel really good at finding the best deals. And where are the best deals? Well, 78.4% of consumers polled said they compare prices online before purchasing products anywhere. In fact, when it comes to finding good deals, 73% believe that they get the best deals online. The other big factors are product quality and speed of delivery. 26% of consumers who shop online indicate they do it on marketplace platforms like Amazon, Etsy, or eBay, for example, versus 20% who do their shopping directly on retailers' websites, say, for example, Target or Macy's. When shopping online, 50% of U.S. shoppers do it on websites, while 48% now use shopping apps to do their shopping. Most consumers feel they're now more than secure to make their purchasing transactions online, 75% believe they are just fine and all is safe when making online purchases these days. What are we buying? Data shows the top three product categories are clothing and accessories, household items, and consumer electronics. So there you have it. little insight into how Americans are shopping online today. Brisk as ever, no doubt. There goes the cash. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com the source for everything you need to start and grow your own business. And that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. Once again, it is Therapy Thursday, where we spend a little time on the couch with Dr. Steve Craig, psychologist and corporate coach for Craig Counseling Services in Bloomfield Hills. Doc, good morning. Good morning. How are you guys? We are good. What's our topic this morning? All right, today... Dr. Steve, I'm having an issue with my wife and her family and need help with how to get my wife to handle the situation better. In her family, she has always been the most competent of the bunch. Her father was an alcoholic and died when my wife was in her 20s. Her mom is super kind and nice, but basically hapless and emotionally dependent upon everyone else. Her brother is an irresponsible mess, and uh, I lost my. And my wife, as the oldest, has always had to handle everything. And she does a great job at it and has transferred those traits into the rest of her life as she has excellently manages our household, the kids, and even her job by handling everything. She's really quite impressive considering where she came from and what she still has to deal with. But here's the thing. Her brother keeps making things worse. He is constantly emotionally hurting everyone in the family with his irresponsible, selfish behavior, but especially her mom. And while the mom lives a nice life, she doesn't need all the grief the, her son gives her. But my mother-in-law gets more depressed um, oh, um, but, my, but my wife won't deal with him and gets angry when I tell her she has to do something. So I'm stuck watching my mother-in-law get more depressed while I know my wife could do more to help. How do I stay out of it despite the damage it's causing 
or do I stay out of it or do I get involved and handle it myself? I have to watch all this happen. How do I do something productive here? Hmm. First of all, it sounds like I, I love the fact that he loves his wife and how she can things about is, her. Yeah. Is, yeah. And that's it is. She sounds like an amazing individual. So you got to wonder where the blind spot came from when it comes to her brother, because she sounds like she's pretty defensive of mom. But, uh-huh. but not when it, why is she opening the door to him? Why is she allowing the brother to just run amok? Mm-hmm. The brother has issues, evidently, right? I and guess from what we from, see here. And is it from dad and dad being an alcoholic and going through things? And, you know, Who knows? boys right. look at their dads as their heroes and it just kind of spiraled from there. And then he just, you know, misery loves company. Right. But okay. what do we do? I'm usually the one that says, the in-law should not do any of the work. But today I'm going to say, since the wife is so adept at managing everything, perhaps she needs a little help. The burden is getting too big. And if the husband's been around a long time, knows everything here, why couldn't he go and talk to his brother-in-law and try and help the situation and be productive? It sounds Don't look like... at me like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. It sounds like she that he has already thoughtfully and respectfully, because he sounds like he really respects his wife a lot, yes. brought this to her attention. And I guess to me, it's I need a little more information about why she has this blind spot with her brother and his mischief. Because uh, he manages it, everything else pretty well, according to right. him. Right, and when it comes to mom and why she isn't more defensive of mom. But... I, I'm I'm going to take the opposite from Jamie and saying I, he sounds like he's got a magical relationship with his wife. If this is the only wrinkle, the brother being an idiot, stay out of it because that's the. It sounds like you've got ninety percent of everything going well there. So your stay out, Jamie's a jump in and yep. Lloyd stay out, stay out. All right, here's what I think. Jamie's funny. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> <laughs> the side eye. Let me start with this with a, a, a set stage with this. So I, I, I said to you guys last week, I was skiing the week before with six guys. All of these guys are CEOs and doctors and important people, presidents. These, this is an impressive group. But one of the guys in the group is like an Eagle Scout. I mean, this guy booked our trips and our skiing and the car and he got up in the morning. We got up, his breakfast is already made. He's planned the route. It was everything like he would probably would have cut my food for me if i would have let him you know (laughs) he handled everything and what our comment was i'm like i'm gonna divorce my wife and marry this guy i mean he handles everything but what was great is we are all people who live our lives making decisions constantly and i didn't have to make a decision all week none of us did this guy handled everything and that's what the vacation was it wasn't just the nice weather and the skiing i didn't have to deal with anything and that's what I want you to think about, because in this particular scenario, um, if if the question is you want to be productive, you're not going to be productive in getting the wife to talk to the brother. That You're missing a huge opportunity here, because if this has been going on forever, it's going to keep going on. We can't believe the brother's going to change. We can't believe the wife's going to have some magical things she's going to say. I, I, I know that's sort of defeatist, but we all know that these people, it just keeps going on. She's not, what, what's she going to make happen? So... But if the wife, the way he described the wife is she's that person in the family who was always the hero child, who got everything, who all of these things were messed up, and she's the one who handles everything and has just put everything on her shoulders, like my buddy, the ski trip buddy. So how about 
if, if she's the one who ha- handles the burden of handling everything, you know, if everyone in life, including herself, is asking her to handle everything, how about we be the one place in the one relationship that says you don't have to handle everything? How about we say you don't have to do that? But is this the venue where you do that? I, I understand. Right. Let's take some stuff off your plate, honey. Right. But the brother? But, but because if we think the brother's not going to change, all we're doing is sending her back to another battle that's not going to change. That doesn't mean we say don't but say anything to her. Sounds like she's pretty aware. She knows that. Well, what I saw in there somewhere, even though I had trouble reading it, was you know that she was avoid. She wasn't going to do it. I you know what I took in there was she's done it a bunch of times. It's not happening. She, you know, she's hitting her head she's on the wall. She's just hitting the head against the wall. And, you know, the pressure here to have her do it again, to me, feels like this guy trying to solve his own angst about he's watching the he's watching all the problem. Okay, you, the problem solver, you go solve it, where she solves everything. Give her a break from that. Don't let, you know, that means the family still might have the dysfunction, but sometimes it's not your job to fix it. How about we just let it, you know, mom's got to deal with it, brother's got to deal with it. Do we have to put her in the situation to handle this once more again. Now, that doesn't mean she can't go deal with it. She could go confront the brother. But I want to take the pressure off of her that this is one more thing you have to handle. So he's going to intervene? Yeah. No. He's saying... Just it, let it go. Yeah. Just let it go. because Ignore it? Again, you don't have to ignore it, but I, I, if the guy were in my office, I'd say, this is an opportunity for you to say to your wife, this has been going on for 40 years or whatever it is. You it's can't not going it. to change. You need to do whatever you need to do to make yourself feel better. Perhaps create but different boundaries. Different boundaries, different things. And if you need to talk to them, do and whatever. But you're not getting any pressure from me for you to have to go fix this or do okay. it. I want you to know that, you know, this is not a relationship. Nothing about what you have to do coming from me that you need. I want you to know that in our relationship in this place, you can. You, this is a place where you don't have to do any of that. Dr. Stephen Craig, psychologist, corporate coach for Craig Counseling Services in Bloomfield Hills. Thank you again, sir. I don't feel like there's justice because that Kate's never coming home. Yeah. We will always have that hole in our family. So, you know, whether she got nothing or, you know, ends up being sentenced to max 15 years, I'm glad it sets a precedence. But at the end of the day, uh, our son's not, not coming home. And mm. that hurts, you know. Can't even imagine. That is Buck Muir, the father of Tate Muir, talking about his reaction to the four involuntary manslaughter convictions of Jennifer Crumbly. We've had some great discussions about what it could mean legally, but what does it mean for the community? For that, we bring in Lori Borgo, who is a Village of Oxford council member and a mother of two Oxford high school graduates, also an Oxford graduate herself, about how the community at large is viewing uh, this important development. Lori, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm I'm good, and I'm obviously concerned about where we go from here. I don't, I don't think Oxford's travails are, are over because we have the James mm-hmm. Crumbly trial. We've got the civil litigation uh, still ahead and a lot of accountability. One of the things that, Tate, uh, that, that Buckmere said in that interview, and I wanted to get your take on this, was the notion of whether or not school officials should be not just civilly but criminally held responsible for a failure to act and negligence. Is there a consensus about that within the community, and what do you think? I don't know if there's a consensus, but um, I do know that plenty of us agree with Buck. Um, it, it is definitely, I would have 
if I had a choice and they said, okay, the prosecutor can try the mother or the school, which do you think we should try to change? Should we try to change governmental immunity or parental? I would have said go for the governmental immunity. Um, I do feel like things need to change in, in how we allow schools to have no oversight. Uh, Lori, the school says they've made a bunch of changes. You know, I've seen many stories since this incident happened. Do you feel that it's really not that much of a change? I feel like the school has, this school has made some changes, but there are a lot of other schools in Michigan. And um, we see that policies and procedures get set in place and that's good enough. And then this happens because there was plenty of warning. The school has a duty to protect all the students there. They told me they only have a duty to protect the students from their employees, not from the rest of, from anyone else, not from strangers, not from children, not from anyone. And uh, to me, that is not why we, the state tells them to make these types of policies and procedures in the first place. And it's not what us parents believe that they're doing. Mm, that's shocking. What are parents, mm-hmm. uh, you know, parents and, and students who still have to deal with this, Lori, how are they coping? How, how do they, do they get together and are they supporting each other? Yes, there's still quite a, a community um, of people just trying to find ways to make changes still, um, trying to support each other, support the families the, um, of Buck and, and, or of Tate and Madison and Justin and um, Hannah. We, we, we do what we can to try to support them and, and support the community and, and keep on moving and keep our kids going. It's, um, it's, it's, it's been difficult, but it has definitely brought quite a few of us together. In terms of where we are, and, and, and Buck was asked this by our All Talk guys yesterday, about when you look at what's happened in the aftermath of this, and also in the aftermath, notably, of, of the Michigan State shootings, we have seen some changes in our laws. They take effect next Tuesday. Do you think that as parents... Our kids are safer when they go to Michigan schools today than they were on November 30th? I think our kids are safer when they go to Michigan State and when they go to Oxford. I don't think our our kids are safer in any other school. Even with the safe storage law that's going to be coming online, mandating that if you have a minor in the household, you have to take very specific steps. The safe storage law, I think... It's a good law in general because that's what would have been tried on these parents if it was in the case, if it was in case law already. Yeah, there's some accountability. Uh, It's not in question. Right. And it's, you know, it it talked to nearly every gun owner and they believe that you should keep your kids away from your guns away from kids. Um, They keep theirs stored properly. And so it's just it's just ownership it's it's proper ownership what's astonishing is that jennifer crumbly testified she thought that they that they stored the gun uh responsibly all other evidence to the contrary right i mean there's a picture of an unopened cable lock that was supposedly on the gun um and a gun safe that still had the password zero 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 right just not credible 
Lori, this has been quite a journey from the shock of everything happening to the Ethan Crumbly trial and, you know, sentencing to to Jennifer Crumbly getting convicted. I mean, what did you all feel the day that Jennifer Crumbly was convicted? I can't speak for for everyone. I was torn. (laughs) I wasn't sure how to um, feel about it. I, I, I mean, I understand that there's so much different in this case, but, um, I just, I, I don't know. (laughs) I feel good for the families. I feel good that, um, something needed to change and there needed to be accountability in this case. And I just hope it doesn't bring on prosecutors uh, that are overstepping bounds in other cases. Lori, when she said on the stand, when when uh, Jennifer Crumbly said on the stand that if you know was asked what would she do anything different, she said she wouldn't do anything different. How did that hit you? That was the most painful thing I think I've ever heard. I understand why she said it. I tried to have empathy for the fact that it was probably a defensive move, um, but I, I can't understand how anybody can try to say that they wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, yeah, and I think that with so many of us were hit that way, understanding that it was a legal strategy, but not necessarily one that would be very popular um, at large. Lori, um, we we thank you for your time, and it's just um, we just we we just continue to pray for healing for you and others in the community of Oxford because this this road isn't uh, isn't finished yet. Right. Thank you. Yeah, and we appreciate your thoughts on on the immunity issue, and that is something that uh, that we'll continue to talk about here on on uh, AM seven sixty. Lori, do Thank take you. do take care, and thanks thanks for being with us. I wanted to give Buck Meir uh, one of the final uh, moments here because the the interview with All Talk I thought was so interesting, and they asked him a couple of times, "Do you think that this will bring real change and real reform?" And I thought his take was just so insightful. Well, I think. This leads to, I think there needs to be a discussion about it. And here's the problem with our country, not just our state, our country. We can't sit down and have conversations anymore. Our politicians can't sit down and have conversations anymore and and, and problem solve and represent all of the people. Right now, only extremists are represented in our government. Extreme right or extreme left. Those are the only ones represented. I am not represented. I'm a moderate. Yeah. You know, and this is the, this is the problem here is all we want to focus on is guns. When a, when a school shooting happens, all we want to focus on is the guns. And I'm not saying that we we shouldn't have some tough conversation about that. And, and maybe there's no legislation that gets implemented. But why can't we sit down and have a tough conversation about it? And I can tell you that I've had listeners call into my show in the afternoon saying, we can't even discuss this. This is not something that's open. We either have to get rid of all the guns. And then the other side says, well, the Second Amendment is sacrosanct and we can't in any way infringe upon it. There is no, he's right. There's no discussion because the the political class is so cravenly dependent upon their base. Nobody speaking for the middle. That, or the masses. Yeah. Or the majority. Yeah. And there are children dying in schools, and there are parents and communities who want change. And we should be able to talk about that. And they're dying because of partisan polarization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the inability for certain people to man up.
And that's so sad. Uh, the 745 on News Talk 760. Much more when we return. We know we've got some mild weather out there today. I think we're just going to see a high of 55. May get to 60 tomorrow. So it seems funny to be talking about heating and cooling. Maybe we ought to talk about cooling more than heating as we move forward. But our friends at CNC Heating and Air Conditioning, they're kind of like Lloyd. They're saying, don't worry, the cold weather will return. There will be a frozen boot that's going to drop here. And they want to make sure that your system is prepared. And that starts with two things. First of all, making sure that the Corian family is your first call if you have a problem with your furnace. Call CNC Heating and Air Conditioning. They have certified technicians. They are insured, and they've got a 24-hour emergency line, and they're ready to help. And they take great pride in offering unparalleled customer service. That's why their motto is, service today, installation tomorrow. We're going to try to fix it. We'll be Johnny on the spot. But if we can't do that, we can get a new system and make sure that you're protected tomorrow. Right now, the Carrier Cool Cash Savings Plan is out there that will give you some significant discounts if you do need a new system. It starts with a simple call, toll-free, 800-MY-FURNACE. That's 800-693-8762. They'll come out, they'll give you a survey, find out exactly what you need so you're not overpaying for a system that is too big, and then install that new carrier heating and cooling system tomorrow. cncheat.com. That's cncheat.com. Carrier, turn to the experts. We've got something special coming up in our 8 o'clock hour, uh, a stay-and-play package for two in beautiful Marine City, courtesy of the Inn on Water Street and Riverbank Theater. And uh, we'll give away that stay-and-play package coming up uh, after our 8 a.m. news and uh, whip around there. Uh, In the meantime, I am looking at the WJR uh, travelclub.com website where we have put together a brochure for this amazing trip that we're going to be taking come September to Cambodia and Vietnam. It's the first time that our uh, WGR Travel Club has gone to Asia. We want to learn more about it uh, and share more about it with uh, the the impresario, the president of Cruise and Tour, who does such an incredible job taking these adventures to a new level. Charlie Crawl on our live line this morning. Hey there, Charlie. Hey, good morning, Guy. How you doing? I keep going back to this doggone website and just marveling at the pictures uh, that we have found and the culture that we're going to be experiencing. Just share with our listeners how hot Southeast Asia has become in terms of its popularity as a destination. It's, it's, at, the, it's at the very top. Um, this is, you know, you think about where you've traveled uh, around the world, we started off in Europe, we went to Africa, and, and you're following the kind of a, a typical a tourist path where, you know, you go to some of the more known things to start off with, and then you start getting that itch to adventure further and further out in. I can tell you Vietnam and Cambodia, while you mentioned is hot, is still relatively undiscovered from a uh, insanely cool, cool uh, a tourist destination. So, Folks that go on this trip are just going to be astounded with the level of experience that they that they have there with you. It's uh, I, I'm super excited to hear all about it. You know, there's so many different things that you can sample and try. Obviously, I'm going to be immersing myself in the cuisine, and then I'm going to be doing yoga in the morning with our WJR listeners to try to at least mitigate some of the consequences of that. <laughs> uh, the other thing is, guys, have you seen those little three-wheeled vehicles yes. that yeah. you see on the streets? Yeah. Charlie, is there a way that we can get a joyride on one of those? I would love to take one of those for a spin. 
They are called uh, tuk-tuks, and absolutely. Uh, we've got that and uh, so, so much more. I think, you know, you Guy, when we were chatting about this trip, um, you know, when you were thinking about doing this, one of the things you impressed upon me is just how much you love all of those unique experiences. And this trip is just action-packed with them day in and day out. And so when you think about Cambodia, you know, you think about Angkor Wat, the one of the most iconic religious yes. sites, the largest religious temple in the world. And of course, we're going to be there. We're going to see it. We're going to have expert guides taking us through it. But we try and do over-the-top experiences kind of everywhere we go. And uh, this is no exception. At the end of the day, uh, we're going to go to a neighboring temple, uh, go up to the top of the temple, pop a bottle of champagne, and wait for the sunset over Angkor Wat so you can get uh, the most, you know, awe-worthy photos. I mean, those are these are bragging right type experiences yeah. that people are going to be coming home with that. <laughs> We're just so excited uh, for your listeners to experience. So I want to toot your horn because when we traveled to Normandy with cruise and tour, the, the young man that took us on a tour of Omaha beach, think about this guys. He had personally interviewed 1200 American GIs mm. oh, over wow. the previous 10 years. And of course there are so few of them now, sure. but so he could bring their story to life and their story would live on yes, yes. Mm -hmm. that's what cruise and tour does so well whether it is normandy or here in southeast asia you're going to find the best storytellers to share these uh to share these adventures that's what's so fascinating to me when you go through these villages you meet these people and you meet the the, the folks that are there and you explore the culture that's that's what really gets me when you go to these kind of places. and i don't know how you do it charlie but you find some of the most amazing characters <laughs> <laughs> This is this is actually, you know, this is, plays well into this year. I mean, we have a gentleman whose name is Mr. Hung, and he was uh, he was born on the Mekong. Uh, he fought for Vietnam. He was a prisoner of war, eventually released after the war, went back to um, and, and has raised his family on the Mekong. And imagine just sitting down with him and hearing his story, hearing, um, you know, his, I mean, can you even imagine the chapters in that story that he has to tell yeah. there? It's uh Experiences like that, that you typically go to a destination thinking, oh, I want to see these things. And you come home talking about things that are completely different, like the stories you told or the food you ate or the, the sights and the sounds and the, you know, the, you know, the smell of, of the, the country. It's, uh, you know, I think the one thing people are going to be coming home talking about this trip is the hospitality. And I know you experienced some of that. In, in Africa on your safari, but this is a whole different level. People genuinely want you to come to their country and feel extraordinarily welcomed. And and so that's that's going to be a, a kind of a cherry on the top of this entire experience here. Well, and the other thing that Gail and I always talk about even t today is the people from the WJR listeners that we share the experience with and the people that we met on the voyage who are, I mean, I got to tell you, it was funny. We, we, we've secretly said we couldn't think of 40 people in our friend group that we would have had as few problems with as the, <laughs> just the general WJR listeners that we were with. And and that's the best part is no is drama. That, no drama. Yeah. We were, and we're going to be traveling on a riverboat that is very, that is our very own Mekong River luxury boat. It's uh, it's 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 next level type of stuff here. And you talk about that drama, and that is that's something where you know you pay money to go on an experience, and the last thing you want to be worrying about is, well, who am I going to be sharing this experience with? You know, and that's really kind of the X factor of the WGR Travel Club and our companies. We've identified that as 
really a pillar of a, the travel experience of not just what you see or where you go, but who you're traveling with. And uh, that has, uh, you know, that has led to many of years of friendships where couples meet on a trip and then they, they sign up and say, Hey, don't, you know, when they sign up and they call Anna or Megan or Deanna, they say, please pair us, you know, next to these people. We want to have a room right yeah. next to them. I mean, it, it's a, uh, it's a really, it's a, it's a cornerstone of the entire experience there. Uh, and we want to remind people that you could learn more about the pricing, the adventure, the itinerary by going to 800-383-3131 right now. There's a cruising tour representative ready to answer all of your questions, or you can go to wjrtravelclub.com. Charlie, can't wait for it to come. And this is a special trip here, and uh, we just encourage you to give them a call. If you have questions, we have a friendly team that actually wants to take your call, uh, and they're just excited to uh, to you know help your listeners learn more and get them signed up. All right. September 2024. Thanks, Charlie. We got some gray skies out there as we knock on the door to the weekend, but it's going to be 55 degrees today, uh, even warmer tomorrow, and we look forward to that. Hopefully you're going to have a chance to get out and walk the dog, walk the baby, uh, yeah. Walk something yeah. <laughs> or just take out yourself and, uh, <laughs> and, and give yourself a quick walk. Um, there will be a, perhaps the most consequential oral argument in an election case since 2000. The, the year 2000 in Bush v. Gore uh, as the justices gathered to discuss whether or not this Colorado ban on Donald Trump can stand up to constitutional scrutiny. That's right, guys. The Supreme Court will hear oral arguments today about the Colorado Supreme Court's saying that former President Donald Trump Trump should be removed from the primary ballot. Opponents of Trump have said he should be disqualified under the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment, which says former office holders who engage in an insurrection or rebellion cannot then hold office. The arguments begin at 10 a.m. The audio of the arguments will be available live streamed online if you want to listen. No video inside the courtroom. Trump, although he's attended everything else, not expected to attend these arguments. Jonathan Mitchell, a former Texas solicitor general, will argue on behalf of Trump. Now, there are many arguments. We talked to Barb McQuaid about this, and you can listen to her opinions on WJR.com and that podcast. He, they could say he did not engage in an insurrection. They could say he wasn't an officer, so this doesn't apply. There are many arguments here, and Barb was saying maybe they say them all. And then the justices mm-hmm. decide which they want to discuss and move forward with. And there are compelling arguments on both sides. For instance, the president and vice president were originally part of Section 3 when it was originally drafted. And then with intent, they were taken out. So that you know, one argument is he isn't an officer of the court because of that. They will point then to other instances where both the courts and the Constitution refer to the president as an officer. Right. Expected to uphold the Constitution. This is part of the Constitution. Yeah, it's there's nothing clear cut about this case. The one of the looniest things, though, is the Trump argument that the Constitution does only bars him from holding office. It doesn't bar him from running for office, which is like, well, so then if he gets into (laughs) office, we're back at the same point. Exactly. What what kind of practical solution (laughs) is does that argument? Hold. Um, I, I don't think that that will be the, the, the deciding argument here, but there will be some very uh, and, and, and there's an overarching question here. Should a judge, an unelected judge or a secretary of state be, have so much power that they could determine the outcome of election by kicking off a candidate that they don't like? Well, I bet you the Supremes probably don't want to really want to deal with this. 
They, they don't, they but they are. Them, but they, have to, they don't want to deal and with And they it. know whatever decision they make, it's going to be a political firestorm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I was reading that Chief Justice Roberts will try and get a unanimous decision so it doesn't look partisan. But And we also know they don't like to rush, but the Colorado primary is March 5th. How, and how do you print those ballots? Oh, right. Yeah, that's, it's, that's their... Well, so they sort of rushed this to get this done in time mm-hmm. for Colorado. Why couldn't they do that in the other case? Yeah. And understanding Jocelyn Benson here in the state of Michigan, our secretary of state, has said, for now, Trump stays on the ballot, but we would like some clarity, uh, clarity mm-hmm. from, from the judiciary on this uh, because uh, there was still, and it was struck down at the Court of Appeals, this Robert Davis um, yeah. Yeah. lawsuit that... I tried to do here what was done in both Maine and Colorado. We'll await the outcome of that, but it's going to be a fascinating day at the Supreme Court. Governor uh, Whitmer has dropped her budget. Understand it's just her budget. The legislature is going to have a lot to say here before it's done. It's $80.7 billion. That is smaller than the budget from last year, due in no small part, because the federal government is not making it rain anymore. No. <laughs> We're not getting showered in COVID dollars. One of the things that she is doing, though, which is interesting, one of the prevailing questions we had during her State of the State message is, so you want pre-K for all four-year-olds, you want community college for all of those that want it, at least the first two years, how the heck are you going to pay for it? Well, she's going to do it, at least initially, by taking money that would have been spent on the Teachers Pension Fund health care, which is now fully funded, more or less, mm-hmm. And take them and say, look, the $600 million that we would normally put into that, we are instead going to put into K-12 through pre-K and community college. And it's going to be divvied up any number of different ways. I think there are Republicans who asked the very question that you did earlier today, uh, Lloyd, which yeah. is, this is one year. One, right. So this is going to be recurring. So does this mean that you don't put that money into the uh, pensions now or... Yeah. How does that work? Uh, yeah, where are you, you going to get the money re- next year? Exactly. Because you're now making a contract with the parents of four-year-olds and the parents of graduating seniors who may want to attend community college. That's right. How do you, are, are you writing, it. yeah, are you writing a check that you can only cash for one year? Right. And uh, we're going to be talking with Eric Nesbitt, who is the Senate Minority Leader, coming up at 835. Well, a guy in a bid to address the ongoing crisis in Gaza, top aides of President Biden are set to convene with local Palestinian Americans during their visit to Michigan today. Dr. Yaman Sadeh, a respected neurosurgeon at the University of Michigan, has secured an invitation to engage with administration officials. He intends to passionately advocate for the evacuation of his family members who are currently trapped in the war-torn region. Dr. Sadeh emphasizing there must be a pathway for Palestinian-American families to exit Gaza. His father, stepmother, and three sisters have endured dire conditions for months, grappling with starvation, homelessness, and fear. They're all medical students. They're all valedictorians when they graduated from high school. They're very smart. Uh, One of them graduated med school. She's an intern, uh, now a first-year resident. Uh, My dad's a retired university professor. Uh, My stepmom's a middle school teacher. That sound courtesy of Local 4. Details regarding the forthcoming meeting remain pending. Meanwhile, uh, Guy, the White House delegates are slated to engage with local Arab American and Muslim leaders who uh, harbor some frustrations over the administration's approach to the Israel-Hamas conflict. And they've got this campaign going, which in the February 27th primary, Mm -hmm. they intend to vote uncommitted, to write that into their ballot rather than casting a vote for Joe Biden, who they hold responsible for a lot of the heartache. Right. Um, Interesting political strategy. And, and, you know, begs the question, well, what is is the alternative? Are, 
are you going to support Donald Trump? And they say no. So there's going to but need to be a reckoning for the general election. Uncommitted means, yeah. And, for, and if they do that for the general election, what does that mean? Uncommitted means a vote for the other person. If, and, <laughs> right? and they have also well, said. Well, it takes away, yeah. at least, yeah. We appreciate your sending us these officials, but that's the very least you can do. We'd like to hear from you. We'd like to hear from your secretary of state or maybe some higher, higher ranking yes. Yes. people. Um, yesterday was signing day for um, the Michigan State, University of Michigan football programs. Well, I guess all the programs. And uh, what's the what's the reckoning there? How did we do? Well, let's start with Michigan State since we had Jonathan Smith on just yesterday. You can listen to that on WJR.com. Uh, Michigan State signed two other players yesterday, bringing the recruiting class officially up to 20 players um, MSU's total number of players signed uh, is 20, as I said, because they had the 18 from early signing day in December. They've got some three-star wide receivers, Jalen Brown, one of those. They did lose one player who was committed on signing day. That was a three-star linebacker. He decided to go to USC. Um, the 20-man recruiting class of this year, uh, they've ranked it 46th. When it comes to recruiting class, let's talk about Michigan. The Michigan football program signed 27 student athletes to the 2024 recruiting class. It's a top 20 recruiting class, according to every major outlet. Rivals has it 13th. Uh, 247 Sports has it 16th. They addressed every position that they needed, they say. Um, but some analysis there, um, this is from USA Today, they think that it, since it falls outside the top 10, that that's a bad sign for a team that just won the national title. And granted, you lost your head coach, and there's these NCAA investigations, right. and <clears throat> Ohio State was on that recruiting trail heavily. So they think perhaps that's not a great trend. And, you know, the other thing is all these rankings and ratings, there are always the undiscovered gems, right? There's the Kenneth, There are the guys like Kenneth Walker III who end up – Exceeding all expectations. So, well, that's the Michigan State. They tran- They brought a lot of transfers over, and that right, worked yeah. when it came to Kenneth Walker. Right. So, uh, do not despair. There's a, there's, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of moves to be made between now and. Uh, and I was impressed by Jonathan Smith. He can turn things around quickly, especially uh, with these transfers. So, don't hang yeah. your hat on forty six. That does, number. Does he give you a positive vibe? Or yes. He does. Yes, and and completely honest, when I asked, do you have ties to this area? How are you going to recruit? He's like, I don't, but I hired people who do. Yeah. We we lost Toby Keith earlier this week. I got to say, really weird. I swear my phone listens to every word I say. As I was leaving after we did the Toby Keith story a couple of days ago, Mm -hmm. when I put Spotify on. It was Toby Keith stuff. It was was Toby with the Doobie Brothers singing (laughs) Long Train Running, this really obscure thing that was great. Uh It's like they listened to us, but we lost another legend today. Yeah, Henry Farnborough. He's the last surviving original member of the Spinners, the legendary R&B group behind hits like It's a Shame and the Rubber Band Man. He passed away at age 85. Uh, He died peacefully of natural causes at his home in Northern Virginia. The Spinners recently inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And last May, Farnborough was here. He visited Motown Studio A uh, down at the museum, reminiscing about their early days at Motown. He leaves behind his wife of 52 years, Norma, and daughter, Heather Williams. His legacy includes six Grammy nominations, 18 platinum and gold albums. And it was he was a rarity. I mean, the Spinners were one of those bands that couldn't find success at at Motown. That's right. And Henry had the 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 um, bicycle uh, handlebar mustache. Handlebar mustache. If you go back and look at some of the videos, he had the handlebar mustache. Oh, they were so good. Uh, We've got a a stay and play package for two at uh, the Inn on Water Street to give away a little bit later on. But when we come back. 
uh, two Warren Middle School students facing serious charges for threats made against a school. This is really kind of a window into how seriously law enforcement is now taking these threats and what they're doing about it. We'll learn more from the chief, Warren Police Commissioner Bill Dwyer, next on JR Morning. You've heard me talking for a couple weeks now about Clarkson Window and Door. This is a company that's been around for 36 years, providing hundreds of thousands of windows and doors to Michigan homes. You pick everything. You control the design process from color, style, grids, and hardware. These are North Star Windows, an American-owned company that designs windows that can stand up to the harshest winter conditions, or in our case this week, spring-like conditions. They never use subcontractors. You always know exactly who you're working with, and they never pressure you. If you go there and you're thinking about it, they don't have these high-pressure sales tactics. They offer fair and honest pricing. They offer financing, too. And to top it off, their windows come with a lifetime warranty. It's no surprise that Clarkson Window and Door is so highly recommended by WJR's home improvement experts, the Inside Outside Guys. Check out their reviews online. Go see them at their design showroom. When it's time to replace your windows, make sure you call Clarkson Window and Door. Visit ClarksonWindow.com for more information or call 248-338-6781. That's 248-338-6781. There have been some recent events in Warren schools that have raised concerns. Just yesterday, a teacher at Lois C. Carter Middle School made a startling discovery. A sixth grade student had a death list containing 14 names in a notebook. Plus, there was another incident that occurred at Chatterton Middle School on the same day. On the JR Morning Live line to walk us through what unfolded is Warren Police Commissioner Bill Dwyer. Commissioner Dwyer, good morning. Oh, good morning. How are you? We're good this morning. You know, in the wake of what happened at Oxford and and, and the shootings around the country, you, you know, you really just got to be on top of situations like this. Fill us in on what happened. Well, first of all, these are probably the most difficult times uh, to be going to school. I mean, the... Um, Students in school, they, they fear for their safety now, and uh, it's something that uh, is out of control. I mean, I can go back to Sandy Hook. You recall that back in uh, 2012 mm-hmm. when there was 26 people murdered, and uh, 20 of them were uh, young people between the six between six and seven years old. What we're having here in, in this country is, is something that's got to get – we have to have better control. The parents have to sit down with the – uh, young people, their daughters and sons. But what we have as far as here uh, just recently is a 13-year-old student that uh, was just charged yesterday with a 10-year felony uh, when he made death threats against uh, another student. Uh, the count is an intentional threat to commit an act of violence against a school, school employees, or students with intent to carry out an overt act. And he's been remanded to the uh, youth home now, and his court date is coming up. So... That's the one. The other is the uh, death list. That's a female, 11 years old. Uh, She's been suspended and is pending a mental health examination. Uh, The mother is cooperating uh, with the investigation. Uh, But getting to mental health issues, it's a major concern. Uh, Children are struggling with mental health. Uh, We've seen it in in a lot of different cases, including just the recent uh, conviction of the mother of the uh, shooter uh, that was found guilty of the involuntary manslaughter. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if you look at it, violence in schools is dramatically increased, and um, parents have to you know, communicate better with their sons and daughters and sit down with them and pay attention to any obvious signs that, of uh, behavior uh, changes. Uh, Mr. Commissioner, it must be such a fine line from people who ignored what was going on with the shooter in Oxford and it led to what it did 
to what happened with just a middle schooler and how his whole life now is different. But you certainly took it very seriously, this threat. Well, we take you know all of these uh, very seriously. I mean, uh, uh, threatening violence uh, obviously is uh, out of control. And last year was the highest incidence of school shootings in the history. With 83, there was 83 different in, uh, cases in the United States where 40-some people were murdered. Uh, that includes uh, teachers and students. And that's the highest ever. So you can see that something has to be done. I think the parents have to be held responsible. And they are in the uh, recent conviction uh, in the Crumley case. Uh, they got to be accountable, and the parents got to pay attention, and also the schools. The school administrators are, are doing a pretty fair job, but I think that they can improve too. But we immediately uh, make this a priority on any threats that come in, and we work very closely with the prosecutor in uh, Macomb County, uh, Prosecutor Lucido. He's uh, uh, with us on these efforts, and mm-hmm. uh, we'll continue to get the word out that uh, there's no zero tolerance as far as uh, – when the threats are made, I, I recently just last night seen the uh, parents of the uh, 13-year-old going on saying, well, they shouldn't have charged my son this and that. Well, uh, shame on them because they're not paying attention, and well, we yeah. may have prevented a, a major, major massacre. And that's my question, Bill. And by the way, it's good to hear the sound of your voice. It's been too long. Um Morning, guy. It's good morning. Look, um, all credit to the mother who is cooperating but I guess yes. my other part of it is, why did it take a hit list for us to figure out that this girl was in crisis? Were there other signs that were missed? Well, ab- absolutely, they were missed. I mean, they were missed probably by uh, the parents, and they were missed probably or maybe by the school administrators, uh, just like in the uh, in the Crumbly case. Um, those parents weren't paying attention, and you know, and now they're being held accountable. She's convicted of involuntary manslaughter, and uh, but the, the concern, too, is that it's going to continue. I mean, uh, you're going to see more shootings in schools. You're going to see more neglect by parents not paying attention. And uh, all we can do as far as law enforcement is is try to get the message out that we're not going to tolerate it. We're going to have zero tolerance, and we're going to move forward with uh, felony warrants and convictions. Uh, Commissioner, the one child who got into a fight and said he was going to come back, you know, to the school with a gun and came back with a weapon. Do we know where the weapon came from? Well, that morning, uh, we uh, immediately, once we found out, went to the home uh, of the student and uh, the uh, parents, uh, the mother was cooperative. She said, you can search the home. The father uh, was not cooperative. He says, no, you're not searching the home. And by the way, I'm not going to name it, but the father's been convicted of several felonies, okay. uh, serious felonies, and served time in prison. But we did get a search warrant, and we did recover the 9 millimeter loaded gun. And um, based on that and based on the statement made by the uh, 13-year-old himself, uh, he was charged uh, pro- appropriately, I should say. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, I can hear in your voice that you're just as exacerbated by what's going on in schools right now. Do you think the red flag laws, the safe storage laws, will make any difference or what happened to Mrs. Crumbly make any difference? You know, that's a good question. I'm not I'm not real confident. I think in the uh, in the Crumbly case, I, I think that uh, some parents say, you know, I don't want to condemn all parents. I mean, uh, probably 98 percent of the parents out there are doing a great job. They're paying attention or they're, they're looking at any signs or signals that, you know, there's distress or maybe mental illness. Uh, uh, attached to their son or daughter, but uh, 
and we just got to continue. I think the parents really have to sit down and they got to pay attention to any changes in behavior and uh, talk to them and listen to them. And, uh, and the schools have to do the same thing. Uh, uh, we have school resource officers in all our high schools and middle schools in Warren, and they prevent a lot of different uh, situations that could lead to, you know, a major incident involving ch- shooting or whatever. Commissioner Dwyer, Commissioner Dwyer, thank you so much for being here. Keep up the great work in Warren. Appreciate you. Appreciate it very much. Okay. Thank you. And uh, coming up, Governor Gretchen Whitmer making uh, free preschool and community college a centerpiece of her $80.7 billion budget. We'll talk to uh, the uh, Senate Minority Leader about that, Eric Nesbitt, at 835 here on JR Morning. It is an $80.7 billion plan to spend your tax dollars and the uh, list, the wish list that the governor has laid out in her budget proposal yesterday is an extensive one, including uh, free pre-K for all families regardless of their income, for all four-year-olds in the state of Michigan. On the other end of the education spectrum, providing two years of free community college for those that want and need, as I think we all agree, uh, the investment in themselves that can bring not only big dividends in their lives, but also to the state as whole as we try to stay competitive. But there are a lot of concerns about where the money's coming from, how it will be spent, and whether the budget is right-sized. And among those raising those concerns and flags is the Senate Minority Leader, Eric Nesbitt, Republican of Porter Township. Senator, good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. When we saw you at the State of the State, and and we both looked at this very ambitious agenda that (laughs) Governor Whitmer was laying out, we all asked the same question, was how on earth is she going to pay for it? Uh, When it comes for the pre-K through 14 uh, agenda that she has, she's going to be withholding some money that she would normally put into the teacher's pension fund and say, look, we these are savings that we've been able to accrue because of effective management. We're going to use those savings to invest in K through 12. Is that an acceptable form of spending? And is it certainly better than the alternative that you and I feared, which was a tax increase? Well, one, the governor's not being honest or truthful with us on Michigan's long-term debt. Debt, long-term debt has increased by over $1.2 billion over her term in office. Bonded debt has increased a lot of that because of her maxing out the credit card to fix some of these roads. And so what we've seen is that debt has not gone down under this governor. Uh, Governor Snyder, who is a CPA and with the Republican legislature, I think worked very effectively to pay down a lot of the long-term liability, a lot, you know, getting the Michigan's fiscal house in order. And this governor, I, I think the comment I heard yesterday was, boy, if uh you know, listening to her speech, if we took a shot every time she said the word free, we'd all be walking out of here drunk. Right. But to be clear, and she's not going into debt for this agenda with pre-K and community college, is she? Are you suggesting that? Yes, because because if you're not paying, I mean, she, she, A, she has to do stat- statutory changes. So she actually changed the law to say, no, we're going to have to stop putting in as much we are to paying down long-term debt. Two is that what the governor's saying, let's say you start off the year with a $10,000 credit card you know, a loan, right? There's $10,000 in your credit card. You go ahead and through your monthly expenses, you rack it up another 5,000. So you owe 15,000, you pay down 3,000. And so you still have 12,000 of debt. The governor's saying that she saved $3,000 of debt. That's the best example I can give to you. I mean, she's adding up all the mortgage payments when she's still building up debt. And and so what what is happening is the governor, this isn't just fiscally irresponsible, I think it's fiscal malpractice, what the governor is proposing, is that instead of trying to keep a good fiscal house in order to make sure that we pass along 
less debt so that we free up dollars for our children and grandchildren from from debt that we inherited from our parents what what she's proposing is that you know is that let's uh you know let's make the promise today uh let's pay for other things and let's the children and grandchildren figure out how to pay for it no that was my question and lloyd's was how do you pay for it next year right these are savings you can use one year you're not guaranteed of having them next year oh, oh she's she's planning on permanently like in illinois or or connecticut like just ignoring what needs to go into the pension fund what needs to go into these long-term liabilities and so she's actually building the budget long term in you know by using these these dollars shifting them rating the pension teacher pension fund and shifting them out and then it's also like last year we started with a nine billion dollar surplus and what the governor introduced in their budget you know while rating the um, teacher pension fund while increasing income taxes by 700 million dollars the governor's budget starts off next year with $7 million. So you go from $9 billion last year to ending with $7 million next year. And, and so that's, I think that's playing it way too close to the vest on any budgeting. And that's all built upon taking money from the teacher pension fund and in, in a $700 million income tax increase. It, it's, it's fake math. I don't know how else to explain it. Um, the teachers, uh, they, the Michigan Education Association appears to endorse this plan. Uh, mm-hmm. They say that, you know, we're 99.2% funded in that fund, and, and this is an investment in our kids. And one is that that's not true. They're not 99% funded. There's $35 billion of long-term liability that's still in the Michigan Pension Fund. Two is what they're looking for is let's divert money from the pension fund to try to have more uh, union members today, because it's constitutionally required that these pay- pension payments are made. So they're hoping for a tax increase in the future, or daring folks in the future to actually cut the per pupil allowance sometime in the future, which is you know really hard to do. And I wouldn't want to propose that. But somebody has to be the grown up in the room, and somebody can't just say, you know, the governor continues just to use public relations talking points to try to get free, 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 free everything. Well, let's a budget's about priorities. Let's work to prioritize. Yes, let's work to prioritize, prioritize education. But if we continue down this path, we can be completely debt free over the next 15 years and free up billions of dollars to be able to invest in the needs in, in education without putting it on the backs of our children and grandchildren with more debt. But if you want to play like they do in Washington, D.C., where debts and deficits don't seem to matter anymore, then the Democrats can own that and they can have that. I'm going to be continuing to be fiscally responsible. Somebody needs to be and continues to prioritize education. Let's fix our K through 12 system. It's broken now. Pre-K is open for those that are, are you know, a family of four making under 70000 a year. Uh, we've expanded pre-K over the last 10 years um, to, you know, to that. What the governor is proposing is that there's no means testing for it and that it's opened up for millionaires and billionaires. And same with community colleges. The last three years, we worked in a bipartisan way to open it up uh, for folks to access community college for those that don't need it, making sure that those last dollars are available for working class families to be able to access community college. And what the governor is saying is that there should be no means testing. It should be, you know, whether you're making a million dollars a year um, or 500000 a year, you should still get you know, free community college. I, I think a little means testing is a bad thing to make sure that folks are you know, are working and that we can afford a structurally sound budget in the future.
Senator, uh, with the Democrats in control of the Senate and expected to retake the majority in the House after the special elections this spring, I, I would take it that the governor will probably get a, a lot of what she wants. But my question is, will the Democrats get enough Republicans to come on board to approve immediate effect of this, even if you guys don't approve the budget? Well, at the end of the day, I'm going to continue to work to make sure we have a balanced, sustainable budget that prioritizes infrastructure, education, public safety. And it's one of those areas where let's work together, let's actually sit down and, and, and work on a real growing up budget using real math and that make sure that we're taking care of our children and grandchildren, that we're fiscally responsible and that we're in a more competitive position. And what the, the Democrats did last year, exactly right, the governor didn't just run the executive office, he seemed to run the legislature also last year, is they made costs higher for businesses and small businesses across the state. Right to work's being repealed next, next week. They passed their green new energy deal that did, did nothing to improve our distribution network where we see outages all over our state. And, and yet they're going to make the generating capacity with wind and solar less, um, you know, less reliable and more expensive. And so, the, and then on education, last year, what we saw in, in education last year was try to limit choice as much as possible for, for parents. And then secondly, take away any of the accountability measures that we had. And you look at, you know, such as, you know, making sure the kids are able to read by the third grade, making sure that, you know, some teach, you know, teachers are, are judging how, you know, partially judging mm -hmm. student growth. And, and, and so they've repealed a lot of those measures uh, on accountability, how, you know, and yet they just want to expand uh, the, the education system without trying to fix the fundamental issues. And the governor last year appointed about 80 members from around the state that she picked all herself. And they came out with a report they called the Population Commission and Growing Mission Together Commission report in December. And it was a pretty damning report five years into this governor's administration on how weak we are in education and infrastructure and economic development. And this is something where the governor is more interested in raising her national profile, unfortunately, you know, seeing if Biden actually runs for reelection or if she's, you know, can be somewhere on the presidential ticket this fall, rather than taking care of the serious problems that we have in Michigan. Right. That means fixing our roads and bridges, improving education and backing the blue. Senator uh, Nesbitt, it is round one of what we know will be a very passionate debate over uh, spending priorities in the state. We, we appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me on. God bless. Have a great day. You too. Senator Eric Nesbitt, the Senate Minority Leader. We should point out that we extended the invitation to Governor Whitmer's folks and uh, they declined. So we will uh, continue to try to do that as this uh, debate over those sp spending priorities continues to move along. When we come back, we've got a great stay and play package for two to give away to see uh, a production of Bonnie and Clyde. Also, it was 60 years ago today that we first heard the band play. We'll talk about a big anniversary next on JR Morning. We've got an opportunity for you to win a stay-and-play package for two, including a night's accommodations at Marine City's premier boutique hotel, the Inn on Water Street, and then tickets to experience the Riverbank Theater's production of Bonnie and Clyde, playing now through March 10th. Be caller number nine right now at 1-800-859-0WJR, 1-800-859-0957. We would love to send you to Marine City for that. And when we were up in Port Huron, we talked to uh, some of the impresarios of, of the Riverbank Theater, mm -hmm. and they've got a great thing going up there.
there. Yeah, and that's just something different. Get out of town, go see something cool. It is, and, and the theater is great. Uh, I went uh, last year. Me and Link went up there last year, and uh, I was <laughs> in the theater in the in the bank, the Riverbank Theater, with the bank vault. Cool. <laughs> right there in the theater. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't stumble into that thinking it's the men's room. We, we'd hate for that time lock to kick in. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you want to read more information about this or learn how you can get tickets, uh, if you uh, do not uh, prevail in here, and uh, congratulations to Pamela in Clinton Township. She's on her way to Marine City uh, sometime now through March 10th to see that. February 1964, it was actually 60 years ago yesterday, that the Beatles, uh, it wasn't Sgt. Pepper, it was the Beatles that landed at JFK. And um, I can tell you that I was five years old. Okay. I wasn't here. Um, but I remember like it was yesterday because my parents, for some reason, said, well, we got to watch it. We always watch Ed, Ed Sullivan. Sullivan. Yeah. We got to watch Ed Sullivan tonight because there's this thing going on. And my dad was a big band guy and he loved country music. Uh, same thing with my mom. They were not rock and rollers. We had folk music in our house. But they said, we got to listen to these guys. And we, I mean, I was blown away. It was the most humble thing in the world. And um, it was so important. I don't think people understand or remember that we were just a couple months out of the Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. And this country was still in a huge funk. And the Beatles, with all their, their youthful exuberance and excitement, showed up with these toe-tapping, scream-your-lungs-out songs that were just infectious. It was a positive vibe that this country desperately needed. With those Beatle haircuts that when they shook them, the girls would scream. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Um, you know, I would, had I thought further ahead about this anniversary, I would have loved to have uh, connected with uh, Punch Andrews and Bob Seger because... Uh, Seeger had, I think, just signed in 60, it was later on in 65 with mm-hmm. Capitol Records. But he, he went backstage at one of the Olympia concerts here and got to meet Paul McCartney. Um, but, I mean, when you think of the influences that they've had and continue to have and the great covers that are done, it's still amazing that we're talking about a band that hit it big 60 years ago. Yeah, it was, it was a huge time. It was huge. For them to come over and, and, and be here. It was huge. And they've crossed three generations yes. now. And I got to tell you, my kids that are in their 30s are, are now playing I Want to Hold Your Hand and She Loves You for their kids that are one oh, and two cute. years old. Because it's what's easier to sing to for a toddler than yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we should also say that grandma and grandpa are indoctrinating them into the Beatles cult. Okay, you know, there's a little bit the of Beatles museum, we, the, the Beatles shop we went to. Where was the, was God. that up in um, was that it was, Saginaw or Port Huron? It was Bay City. Was Bay it City. Bay City? Yeah. Bay City, yeah. man. That was now that was something. Incredible memorabilia yes. they have up there. And uh, yeah, that's one of those nifty places that if you're just cruising up I-75 mm-hmm. and you need a break, get off in Bay City and go to this uh, this Beatles it's Shop. kind of like a soda fountain yeah it, it, it never was. even heard of this oh it is amazing so if you're heading up north yep. just get off yeah there okay. are little you yeah. know, great places to do that records and action figures and lunch boxes and all kind of <laughs> Beatles Beatle stuff it, it is great. stunning to think that the the cultural impact is is still there um, we should have a vote later on this evening. It could get all serious, but it's going to be important to determine whether or not Israel, Taiwan, and Ukraine 
gets the kind of national security dollars they need for their particular missions and security. And it looks like that it's going to be like Groundhog Day. We've already got, um, you you know, the the Senate trying to say, well, we, we need to do this. There are some Republicans on board. But many more saying, well, we need to do something about the southern border. Uh, Well, we try. Had that vote yesterday. (laughs) Yeah. And it went down in flames. And the Border Patrol is still saying that it was imperfect, but still would have been a very significant move forward in terms of reducing the kind of migrant flow that we that we see here. You can't not vote for this. Right. You can't have that level of dysfunction. Right. Well, that's what this we'll is. Here. This, this is the very definition of partisan gridlock. And, and Senator Langford, who was the architect of the border bill, he's a righteous border hawk from Oklahoma, said, you know, I've got these folks that I'm trying to deal with and I'm trying to find amendments and, and, and you know, daylight that we can come together on this. And they keep saying it's all or nothing. He says, which you never get all or nothing in, in, in government or in politics. And I keep asking them, you know, where is the on-ramp here to some kind of reconciliation? Because the majority of my constituents, they're not saying all or nothing. They're saying, do something. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's where we are. We'll be continuing to follow that, uh, get that started on our Friday Plus oral morning. arguments today in the Supreme Court. Yes. We'll find out. Yeah, and, and, you know, this, the justices are very good at tipping their hand, quite frankly, with the, the, the probative nature of the mm-hmm. questions. Yeah that they have and putting uh, the the various uh, folks on the spot. Um, There is some speculation out there that for a variety of reasons, the liberals will join with the conservatives and maybe with different roads come to the same destination and could get deliver a 9-0 verdict uh, that will kick this back to Colorado and say, no, that's not what the 14th Amendment says. We'll see. We'll cover it for you tomorrow at 6.